when I gave that talk, was any questions that comments that came up to mind? Were you understanding? Was it clear enough? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were there things about how it might relate to your own practice that came up for you? Or Yes, actually. Um, so um, I'm trying to get pregnant, and uh, very recently, as of a couple of weeks ago, trying to let go of that attachment because it's very consuming, and each month it um, can be very disappointing. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that just in on my Facebook feed, I have this thing, you know, Tiny Buddha, and there was an article, and it was talking about the importance of having, you know, a sacred space, or, um, that was one of the points of the article, and so I started to clean my house, and, but discussed having a vision board for, you know, the things that you want in your life, and so, to me, and so I sort of did that, in my office, I have, you know, some things that I I want to be reminded of. So I have a, you know, an artwork I have that says love, and that's that's what I look at. And I have some, some quotes that help remind me to be present and to breathe and relax. But I also put something that made me think of fertility and of the baby. But I wonder, in today's lesson, I started, I, I was thinking about that when you were saying to basically let go of these attachments and um, these feelings and or to just recognize them, I guess, these perceptions. And so I wonder, is it detrimental? Is it bad that I have this reminder of this baby that I want? Um, and should I put that away? I don't think... Um, You know, when you're wanting to conceive a child, I don't think that the idea of wanting to conceive a child is something that you need to um, relinquish in the sense of that you need to change your plans of what you want to do with your life. You know, you want to have a family, okay? So I think what's helpful is to is to bring together wholesome qualities about, you know, conceiving the child with love conceiving the child to bring uh, to have the opportunity to give to a child to, to have them be healthy and well cared for and loved in this world where it's not about changing your life so that you don't have the ideas and the desires that you want it's about being careful not to be so attached so that then they don't happen you're not experiencing the, the kind of depth of despair of disappointment okay so having skillful ideas and having clear intentions and having aspirations for something which for you in your life is healthy and what you want is not something that you need to feel frightened about, okay? But when you notice that your sense of your happiness is entirely linked to that, okay, then you can see how deeply disappointing it is when, you know, you're not getting pregnant. And I know for some people this is just really a big thing, you know. They want to have kids, and the kids aren't coming, and it's really hard. Conway was saying, you know, the best way to make sure you get pregnant is to, is to do something or buy something that's totally not possible to exchange that's very expensive. So <laughs> what he was saying was his 
it was his sister. His sister got a, a loft. You needed a ladder to climb up in some place like New York City. So it was a fortune, okay? So she'd been planning on getting pregnant for a long time, and then the baby was not coming. So she got this loft that needed to get into it. You needed a ladder to get into. And the baby got pregnant, you know. Or then somebody decided that they were going to splurge and get fancy ski lift tickets that were non-refundable or non-exchangeable. And then they got pregnant. (laughs) You know, so there's a way in which, like, okay, you've given up. You know, and so, you know, there's a way of, like, you know, of letting go of that and then seeing how that also can help create the conditions where you relax and your system is able to conceive. It's very common that when there's tension around wanting to conceive, sometimes it's difficult. You know, let go and it can be a lot easier. And then sometimes it's, you know, it's so let go that it's like, oh my goodness, I'm pregnant. (laughs) How'd that happen? Thank you. Yeah. I will say that um, after sitting in mindfulness and then you speaking about the hindrances, uh, as you went through the hindrances, it was abundantly clear which uh, which hindrances had which form in my life. <laughs> it was just you know, it was a perfect matchup. It's something that I had a hard time being mindful about in the past. And, so one of the ways of practicing with hindrances is just to take stock, you know, which of the hindrances are present and which are absent, and just noticing that, Yeah. you know. So sometimes they can be operating, and there isn't even the mindfulness of, well, this is what's happening. And just to know that is already practice. I can already feel a really big transformation on the way I feel about them, mm-hmm. just from being aware of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, when you were discussing how if there's someone who is very detestable to you or did something very egregious to you and you said that you should find I think the goodness in them um, but I'm and I'm not speaking from personal experience but I went I think about the probably the um, maybe most a clear example of where this scenario might be truly difficult, and that's maybe confronting your child's murderer or your rapist. Or, um, and to me, it just seems like that would be so impossible, almost, to find the goodness in in everyone. And intellectually, I understand that you should, that you could, you know, but I wonder how you do that. Is is that just from being more advanced or through practice? Well, it is gradual. You know, we don't start with the worst case scenario and have success with it from the beginning. We start with small things and then work our ways up to it. You know, I've made mistakes. And I know that, you know, when I have made mistakes, it's not because I'm usually coming from a place of feeling very grounded and peaceful. It's often because I'm coming from a place of confusion or pain. And so when I see the places from where I have made mistakes, then that gives me more capacity to empathize with other people who've made mistakes. You know, to know that 
likely is, is that's also where they've come from. You know? When you're talking about huge transgressions like that, you know, where there's that kind of violence or taking of life, you know, you're in a different league, but it's similar principle. So there's a true story of a woman whose son was murdered, and uh, I don't remember the story of why he was murdered. I don't remember what the context was. But she went to the prison and met the perpetrator, the one who murdered her son. And she said to him, I'm going to kill you. And she went to the prison every single day and brought him gifts and brought him food and spent time with him and offered him kindness and offered him care. And he transformed. So that the place that had given rise to the whatever it was that had enabled him to kill her son was no longer there. And when he was ready to be released on parole, she adopted him. She said, you are no longer the same person who killed my son. I succeeded in doing what I had intended to do. Oh, wow. And I think for a person who has a bigger vision, understand that kind of transformation and how healing it would be for her to be able to have that kind of completion mm. gave her the courage to go through the layers of feelings that she would have inevitably had to confront as she was doing that. And there's a whole process called restorative justice, which is based on this kind of thing, though supported with um, facilitators you get perpetrators and victims together where the victims speak about what happened to them, what their experience was, where it landed in them, what the life quality that they had as a result of that was. And then the perpetrator is asked to um, speak about, you know, what they heard this person say, and then speak about what was motivating them to do what they did. And then there's a couple of other things that happen in terms of, of um, retribution or accountability or whatever. But it's, it's not possible for both people to go through it and come out of that process the same. It's not possible. And it's actually profoundly healing for the victim. And a, a perpetrator is not capable of committing the same thing again when they've gone through that. And so it actually transformed them as well. So it's it's a, it's very powerful for both. But for many perpetrators, their initial response when presented with the possibility of doing this is such that they would prefer to be killed rather than to have to actually feel what they didn't want to feel or to hear the feelings and what they did cause to somebody else they don't want to go there so it takes a lot of support and encouragement and whatever to help them get to the place where they're willing to, to do that but when they do they're, they're not the same afterwards you know 
And, you know, and I think the, the beauty, the real beauty, is how incredibly healing it is for the person who's the victim to have some closure, you know, and some level to release the kind of unbelievable agony of what it is that they've had to carry, you know. I knew another woman who, she was raped. And so after a certain point in her healing journey, she decided to work with other victims. And then at a certain point in her healing journey, she started to work with perpetrators. And when she was working with the perpetrators, she found out virtually every single one of them had been the victim of child abuse. And so it was like, you know, her whole system was like, you know, I don't know where this stuff begins, but it has got to stop. It has just got to stop. So it wasn't a question of blaming, it was a question of seeing the cycle cycling. And her whole system was like, no, this has got to stop. So sometimes when we are willing to do this work of entering into the reality of what somebody else has been experiencing, we open up to the pain of what it was that they had also lived through. Unfortunately, you know, trauma that has not been resolved often repeats. You know, a person either in the position of a perpetrator or a victim. And so when you open your heart to that, you know, what else is there to do except feel like the unbelievable agony of the amount of suffering this all is, you know, and it's like, you know, it's not a question of finding the first cause, it's a question of finding the ingredients to help it stop. And it doesn't condone the behavior. But when you see that, it's, it totally puts it in a completely different perspective. So, you know, we start with, um, like, the, you know, one of the, one of the kinds of ways of developing metta is Tonglen. It's, it's, it's in the Tibetan tradition. And this meditation is about the idea of imagining giving everything that you have that you value and taking on everything that you you don't want. Okay, So you can do it with yourself, you can do it with another person, you can do it with a lifestyle circumstance. And when you take on things you don't want, it's not like you're filling yourself up with poison. It's like what you take on, you imagine to be kind of like a solvent that dissolves the very thing that keeps you from seeing the true nature of who you are. So when you take on this negativity, it's not just to make yourself toxic. It's actually designed to cut through the thing that keeps you from seeing who you are. So Pema Chodron was talking about doing Tongan meditation. She was working with one of her students who, whose son was really in a terrible situation. I can't remember what it was. I think he was a drug addict and had a lot of tragedy in his life. And so there was absolutely no way the mother could get anywhere near any of it. So, you know, she was trying to figure out, well, what could she get near? So she could get near the fact that the football team lost, you know, the local football team lost. She could get near that level of disappointment and sorrow. She could work with that. So when she started with something, she could work with, and she would work with that. And then from that, she could open it up a little bit more, and open it up a little bit more, and open it up a little bit more, 
until after quite a long process, eventually she could touch the pain of what she was having to navigate with her son. She couldn't do it initially, but all of it was no way. It's huge. And that reminds me of a talk that you did um, same weekend, the Connecticut murders that happened, and um, <clears throat> how the reactions were so different from everyone. Uh, some people were able to have compassion for, for the guy who killed all his children, and the suffering he must have gone through before, and some people were just angry. And there, you know, there isn't a right response, but what we need to do is to know what our response is and to find a way of, you know, meeting that. So you say there's not a right response, but it's not to have the intention to be able to have that compassion for somebody on that level. Isn't that, I don't want to say better, but um, kind of a, something to work towards? I think it is something to work towards, but I think we also have to be really careful that we don't idealize, you know, what how it's supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. So I remember speaking with Ajahn Sumedha or having him say, you know, somebody was really upset because they got really angry at somebody. And, uh, you know, so for a monastic to get really angry is really unsettling because we're not supposed to do that. And his response was, yeah, but you didn't kill them. That's metta. You know, it's like, yeah, you got angry, but you didn't act on it. Mm-hmm. That's metta. And so not to kind of take an idealized view about we're not supposed to feel things, mm-hmm. but to understand that, okay, yeah, we can get really outraged, but we're not actually dumping that anger on somebody, we're not acting on that anger, we're not actually saying something to that person as a result of that anger. That's already a level of metta, of care, of kindness. And then, and then to work on, you know, how it is possible to... to um, for to another level of compassion. And I remember there was a novice, oh my goodness, she did something and I was so furious. I wanted to wring her neck and I was so angry. It so scared me. I went to go talk to the abbot about it and he said, you only once wanted to wring her neck? for being like, oh my goodness, you know, she would just do things that were like, oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) That's refreshing to hear when we both discussed how maybe someone's irritating us, but we know that we're supposed to be compassion. So we are outwardly, but on the inside, maybe we feel that irritation, but then there's the guilt that accompanies feeling irritated because you know you shouldn't be. <laughs> well, I don't think... Or should in Right, right. <laughs> we need to be really careful. Really, really careful. Because, yeah, compassionate response is really helpful, but it's also not helpful to be dishonest. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, you know, compassion that's pink marshmallow goo is mm-hmm. actually not helpful for anybody. You know? You know, that's the stuff that can give you cancer. <laughs> So we have this idea how we're supposed to be, and inside we're just like beside ourselves. So, you know, it's not okay to slug somebody or to dump on them, but it's also okay to say, listen, you know, I feel so hurt, and I feel so angry, and, 
you know, it's just going to take me some time to process this. You know, that's honest. There's nothing wrong with that. And so, you know, part of what we need to learn is the practice gives us permission for being where we're at. It's not expecting us to be somewhere we're not. And we also have to accept the reality of our own reactions. And that sometimes we can feel disappointed that, you know, I'm not able to, in an instant, transform all this negativity and turn it into something that feels caring and loving. You know, I feel freaked out. I feel unsafe. I feel unable to feel anything other than, you know, how do I protect my space when I don't feel invaded? You know? And that's real. It's not okay to put pink marshmallow goo off on, on that or to dismiss that. It's just that it's not okay to feel that. So part of maturity is actually to be present with where we're at and not to superimpose an idea about how we're supposed to be on top of that. And that takes some time to learn how to do that, you know. Now, it's fascinating for me because as a nun, you know, one of the things about being a nun, which is a pain, is, is that people have a massive projection about who I'm supposed to be, you know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and it's just like endless. I mean, it's just absolutely endless about, you know, the fact that I'm supposed to be this and 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 this. It allows us to be kind and wise and loving and available and wise and skillful and I'm supposed to be compassionate, I'm supposed to be smart, I'm supposed to be able to articulate the Dhamma, I'm supposed to be able to do this at all times under all circumstances, no matter what. You know? And it's like, well, guess what? <laughs> guess what? You know, I'm actually a human being, you know, and human beings are not able to do all those things all the time. They do them sometimes, not all the time like everybody else, you know. So as a nun, I get a massive amount of people's ideas about what I was supposed to be, and then as a result, then they feel totally weird about how they're supposed to relate to me, you know. Because because they think I'm all these supposed to things, and they're not, then how on earth are they going to relate to me? And it's like, come on, guys. <laughs> come on! <laughs> I'm not like that. So stop being so freaked out about how to talk to me. You talk to me like you talk to any other person. I'm a person, remember? That's what I am. I'm a person. You're in robes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, and so then people can oscillate between like this really super elevating idea about and then, then I fall off the pedestal and then I'm only a piece of shit. You know, I for, you know, forget, forget. Don't completely miss the human realm. I go from one extreme to the opposite extreme and there's absolutely no redeeming qualities that I have ever, ever had, ever will have. It's just absolutely demonic. And it's like, come on, guys. <laughs> Welcome to the human realm. Everybody is allowed to make mistakes. This is what we do. You know. You know. Do that. That's what happens in the human realm. So, you know, and I think, you know, for me, one of the things that I can model is, is that it is possible to be totally committed to waking up and be utterly human and, you know, make mistakes and, you know, sometimes get it wrong or sometimes be disappointed in the ability one has to respond in a way one would like to be and that's part of what one needs to do. 
It's to be absolutely honest. Yeah, so, you know, robes in this culture is weird because we're not used to hanging out with people in robes. You know, in a, in a traditional society, people in robes are like safe space. It's like, ah, oh, you know, it's like everyone relaxes. It's like, oh, there are people in robes. It's not wonderful. <laughs> and here people go, It's part of the conditioning you talked about earlier. It's hard to get past. Yeah. It's like, you know, look at me, guys. Come on, look. Look. I'm a person. Look. (laughs) Don't you see? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I love my punks. I love them, but there's something that happens. It's like there's this wall, you know, and it's like, how do we move through this? Well, I was actually just talking about this on the way up down here, and how I had this wall, and and in approaching you, feeling comfortable, and I, and I felt I feel like me. When I was talking about it earlier, it was about how I felt like maybe I wasn't good enough to 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 really communicate with you. Like I wasn't gonna be skillful and, and wise, and how I, I spoke to you, and so I was afraid to do it at all, really approach you at all. That was my, that I felt, I just felt insecure with myself. I think that's probably, probably, likely, that that's an issue with other people. Yeah, I think it's a mixture of things. I think that's part of it. I think everyone has this idea that there's somehow something that they're supposed to know that they don't, so that therefore if they just say anything, then automatically it's going to be wrong because they haven't done the right thing and they don't know what the right thing is. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do anything that's wrong. You don't want to cause offense. You don't want to do anything. So rather than try, you don't do anything because it's safer not to do anything. You know? It's like, come on. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can understand. You know, I'm in Colorado and I'm one. You know, I'm not living in a community, so you get to see me, and then all the things on me. It's not like you're seeing relating to a community of people. And most people have never had contact with monastics. So it's like, that's the norm, is people don't have a clue. Where when you've got a monastery that's well-established, then you have lots of people who've been in connection with the monastery from, like, years. Or, you know, I mean, your traditional people is just part of their culture, it's normal. So that there's the interfacing of the awkwardness with the people who know the ropes, and then one set can support the other set. But it was always the case in the monastery that people who were new were coming were like, "I'm sure I'm going to do something wrong," you know. And then everybody else would kind of scoop them and sort them out and say, "No, no, just relax. You don't need to worry. You know, we're just fine." There's some basic kinds of things that are kind of helpful. Like in the monasteries, it's not helpful for opposite genders to hug each other. So, you know, to know that. But, you know, you can talk about what you want to talk about. But it's, it's an interesting thing. So, um, Melina has, you know, like, described, I guess, her background a little bit to me. And I I did the um, 
I listened to a couple of things off of your website, but I didn't read your bio. I didn't realize you were a monastic. Um, so I'm just curious, do you... So you just practice here, and do you go to a monastery? Are you ever, or...? So um, the story, what happened... I, I do connect up with monastics, um, but the monastery that I ordained in has quite a lot of mold in it, and I got super, super sick from the mold. So I can't go back there readily, because they, they just have mold as like an ongoing issue, you know. And so I can't go back there. So I have to find other ways of connecting up with monastics other than going back to the monastery where I was ordained. And so I meet up and have a monastic gatherings in different times. It's a, during the year. I'll be spending three weeks in um, March and April on a monastic retreat in Washington State at a different monastery. And, uh, you know, so I'll have time then. But it is true. It's unusual for monastics well, the idea is it's unusual for monastics to live on their own, but the reality is is that there are many different ways that monastics can live. And in Thailand, particularly for the men, they would live sometimes in community, sometimes they would wander, sometimes they would live on their own. It was common. For nuns, it was more taboo for women to live on their own, partly because it was always considered unsafe. But it's like, you know, I'm safe. You know, nobody bothers me here. There's not, not an issue. So, you know, I go into the Garden of the Gods, I'm safe there, so it's not an issue. So, you know, we're in a kind of changing kind of culture of what our ideas and what the idea was about what monasteries were and how it's coming into this country and how it's actually working now. It is shifting a little bit. But it is unusual in the tradition that I come from for nuns to be living on their own. And that's got its upsides and its downsides. I wonder if maybe you um, miss being in the, in the monastery at all. Well, <laughs> you know, I never regretted my decision to leave because there were some skittle wampus things that were going down there that were like, you have got to be joking. <laughs> so I never for an instant regretted leaving, but it has been agony, you know, the process of kind of going from a community that I was part of for 20 years to being on my own has been, you know, it's the only thing that I can think of that would be, it's not like getting a divorce it's like having a whole village kind of be covered over by a mudslide or something it's like a total it's 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 like every like everybody you know and your family your village, your community context is just like wiped out it's like, it's so you know, I don't have language to, to describe it so the grief, you know, has been huge, you know, to figure all that out and to come back into, you know, my own strength and my own resource and my own sense of connectedness. It's been a long thing, a big project. But I don't miss being back there. But I miss being in community, you know, in, in community where there are people who are committed to waking up and know each other really well and are there in a way that is supportive. That community, as everything, has got shadow sides to it as well. And there were plenty of times where living in community was really, really hard. Because community can be really difficult until people have done the internal work and the group work that they're actually supportive of each other. And until that, it's like, wow, really challenging. 
And so, you know, here, you know, for lots of time, I was just, I felt sad and lonely a lot. I mean, just super sad and super lonely. And that shifted recently. I feel really happy and very content. Absolutely delighted to be here. You know, just so delighted to be here. Deeply delighted to be here. So, you know, it's been a journey, and it hasn't been an easy one. Like with anything, we can bring whatever is there to our practice. So maybe we can stop and do some meditation, and we can maybe close with some blessing chants, and we can send Lena on her way to the Holy Mother, filled with blessings and protection. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.